Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is Dr. Helena Kastusian, Senior Technology Manager at the U.S. Department of Energy and Program Manager for the Department's Critical Materials Institute, or CMI. Dr. Kastusian earned her PhD from Iowa State University in Wind Energy Science, Engineering, and Policy, and co-focused her graduate studies on electrical engineering. Elena is joining me today to introduce our listeners to the CMI in more depth, and also to help set the stage for why the materials that CMI focuses on are indeed so critical for future decarbonization efforts. We'll talk about supply chains, research efforts, and new breakthroughs happening throughout the DOE ecosystem. Stay with us. Alina, welcome to Resources Radio. It's really nice to meet you, and I'm really grateful that you were able to come on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me, Kristen. So uh, many of our guests here on Resources Radio are social scientists, and so it's always a bit of a treat to have a physical scientist join us. Um, can you share just a little bit about your educational background, your research background, and, and maybe how you ended up at CMI? Yeah, absolutely. So I have a little bit of a checkered background, um, but my graduate work was in electrical engineering with a focus on on wind. Um, but my research um, background, I have about eight uh, years experience on clean energy technology research. Um, so including some things like building energy efficiency, uh, thin film solar fabrication and wind turbine generator design. Um, and so that, like the last part of my research was at the Ames Laboratory, um, and that was actually part of the Critical Materials Institute. Um, and I was modeling magnetic materials and electric machines. So these include things like wind turbine generators. And in general, the, those efforts were meant to guide um, some of the, the you know, materials discovery work, right? So actually providing performance, what it looked like in an end-use application. Um, but I was always really interested in the intersection of science, engineering, and policy. Um, and so I pursued a, a AAAS Science and Technology Policy Fellowship at the Department of Energy. And so during that time, I was uh, supporting the Advanced Manufacturing Office at the Department of Energy uh, in their critical materials uh, portfolio. And then I joined as a federal employee in 2019, um, where I you know, became the technology manager for critical materials. So managing CMI now on the other side of the funding agency. Nice. Sounds great. And I'm not sure how many of our listeners know of the AAAS, which is the American Association for the Advancement of Science, I think that's right, of their fellowship program. But it's it's a wonderful pipeline that sort of connects the science community with the policymaking community here in D.C. And uh, there's a yeah wonderful sort of cross-section of the, the research world it comes out of that AAAS fellowship program. So that's awesome. Right. So you have been with DOE since for a couple of years now. And um, I wanted to ask sort of to set the stage about the Critical Materials Institute and its role within the Department of Energy. So maybe can you talk through our listeners through the kind of the structure of the Institute and the, and the mandate of the Institute? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the Critical Materials Institute, or I'll, I'll say CMI, um, is part of the Advanced Manufacturing Office's broader portfolio of, of research, development, and demonstration. of And so these projects really look to um, address high-impact opportunities and challenges across the entire life cycle of clean energy technologies that use um, critical materials. 
Um, and so CMI, even though uh, institutes in the name, it's actually an energy innovation hub. These are modeled after the Manhattan Project, um, really uh, looking to serve um, a need for the nation. And so um, CMI is actually led by one of DOE's national laboratories, Ames Laboratory. Um, it was established in 2013. It's really kind of our flagship program for critical materials at DOE. But it's, it's not just a single lab, it's really a public-private consortium. So it brings together members um, for national labs, um, universities, and industry members, um, and really uh, as part of a broader innovation ecosystem. Um, and so the purpose of CMI is to accelerate innovative scientific and technological solutions to develop resilient and secure supply chains for various elements and other materials that are critical for clean energy technologies. So their mandate really is to support clean energy technology specifically. Um, and the way they do that is uh, through four um, focused areas for research. Um, these are diversifying the supply of the materials, looking at developing substitutes for those materials to reduce our reliance when we can, um, driving reuse and recycling of those materials, and then those are all supported by cross-cutting research. Um, and those activities are pretty broad ranging. So things like generating thermodynamic data for new alloys that they've developed or doing techno-economic analysis or life cycle assessment of the technologies and even actually looking at the uh, impacts of CMI technologies on the environment so that we don't create a new challenge in the process of trying to address current challenges. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what actually makes a material critical by CMI's definition? Um, certainly, you know, this this connection to clean energy technologies, but what maybe we can get a little bit more specific about the critical materials that are within CMI's scope. And I'll be the first to admit to our listeners that I've already slipped up several times in my correspondence with you and referred to CMI as the Critical Minerals Institute instead of the Critical Materials Institute. But I think that's actually an important distinction that you are considering more than just critical minerals. Is that right? Maybe you can just lay that out for us a little bit. Yeah, you know, it's actually really common to use critical minerals and materials pretty interchangeably. Um, but there is a little bit of nuance of the definitions, at least within the U.S. federal government. So for DOE, at the Department of Energy, we really assess critical materials based on, on two factors, um, the potential for supply disruption and then their importance to energy. So that energy lens is really what's, what differentiates a critical material from the broader critical minerals list that's developed by the U.S. Geological Survey. Um, but we do think about the broader list as well. But CMI's lens is even a little bit more specific because they're really focusing on that mandate of supporting clean energy technologies. Um, so in practice, this looks like the rare earth elements for magnets, um, some of the battery critical materials, and then a couple of materials like indium or gallium that are used in some of the semiconductor um, technologies, um, like uh, like photovoltaics, for instance. Um, yeah. Yeah, and that's great. It's it's helpful to have those kind of specific examples, too, of, of where these critical materials actually come into play in these technologies. Are there any other examples you can provide of sort of how, um, how they specifically feed into the technologies that might be more familiar to the consumer? EV batteries, photovoltaics? Wind turbines, are they pretty ubiquitous in that in that body of uh, technology? Yeah, I think critical materials actually, you know, they're, they're in a lot of ways like building blocks for clean energy technologies. And, and a lot of times they're really difficult to substitute out. Or if you do use a different material or a different technology, um, you actually reduce the overall efficiency of the system a lot of times. Um, 
But so various elements I mentioned, um, you know, if, if you remember back to your chemistry days in high school, it's like the last two uh, at the bottom of the PR table, those two rows that no one ever really looks at. <laughs> um, so they're included there, um, but particularly neodymium dysprosium, you know, these are two of the, the various elements that we think about a lot for, for critical materials at DOE. Um, and they're used in magnets. So these magnets actually play a role in the conversion of energy in electric vehicle motors and offshore wind turbine generators. Um, but they're actually ubiquitous in, in our society. You know, there's various magnets in your headphones, in your cell phones, in the hard disk drives, in your computers. Um, so they are a pretty important technology and, and really common in, in uh, consumer electronics as well. Yeah, and battery, you know, batteries is a great example, lithium-ion batteries in particular. Uh, lithium is, is an example of a critical material, um, and that lithium really enables the full electrons um, in two directions. So that's why you can recharge your battery rather than, you know, having to throw it away um, at the end of its lifetime. And it's also the lightest element on the PR table. So it's, uh, you know, you can really design compact, um, you know, batteries that way. There's a couple other materials that are considered critical in, in batteries. So cobalt is an example. Um, cobalt really provides thermal stability and 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 also uh, you know high energy density in batteries. But there's a shift to, to kind of remove um, or reduce the amount of uh, cobalt in batteries, and so they're shifting to higher concentrations of nickel, which is also you know sometimes uh, critical, especially if it's very high purity. Um, so yeah, it's it's a trade-off, right? All these things are a trade-off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned um, in our, you know, our the question about kind of the definition of critical, you mentioned that it's not only importance for these clean energy technologies, but kind of the other piece of this, if I understood you correctly, is really about supply chain reliability. And can we can we get these materials? Is that is that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. And I feel like that question, that question about supply chain reliability, obviously, has been on the minds of folks at CMI for a long time, but I would say over the past few years, you know, most of us who previously had been sort of blissfully insulated from that have also been thinking a lot about supply chains. That's just kind of a, a term that has become, I think, much more resonant in the in the broad conversation. And so I'd love to talk about supply chains in a little bit more detail too. And maybe I can ask about the contours of today's supply chains for these critical materials. Um, yeah, what what makes them complex? Are they are they sputtering a little bit these days, like other supply chains that we keep hearing about? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, critical materials. Um, there are a lot of challenges in the supply chains, and one thing I'll mention, you know, the the, the potential for supply disruption is definitely uh, an aspect, but the challenges are a lot bigger than can, do we have enough supply to meet the demand. Um, there's there's, do we have the capabilities to process the materials? Um, do we have the workforce, you know, right? So, um, and each material supply chain really has its own unique challenges. The Department of Energy actually recently published a strategy to secure the supply chain for a, a robust clean energy transition. Um, so we had 13 deep dive uh, reports that really, you know, dig into those challenges and opportunities. And some of them for our materials like neodymium magnets, um, uh, so these are the various magnets I have been talking about, but others were on um, the technology focus, like, you know, wind and solar. And so the supply chain is bigger than just the material input into the system. So we look at those different aspects. But we really think, you know, these are challenges, but we like to think of them really about as opportunities at the Department of Energy. Um, you know, so we work with other federal agencies and departments to really drive solutions to these challenges um, and, and really turn them into opportunities. Um, 
And our role in DOE is really to advance research, right? So the Critical Materials Institute in particular, you know, has created this uh, really unique innovation ecosystem to drive those solutions. Um, and, and also that ecosystem has really served as a foundation for the Advanced Manufacturing Office's Critical Materials Portfolio to really um, integrate our work um, with, with other folks in, in Department of Energy. And in particular, manufacturing, you know, it's a really major economic driver and, and a job creator. So, um, so we really focus on, on, you know, multiple aspects of the supply chain, but I think that's a, a unique role that we play in the Department of Energy. Hmm. Very interesting. What are the kind of job skills? Can you say a little bit more about the job skills that are kind of that critical component of the supply chain that you mentioned? What do people need to know to be able to successfully contribute in that way to the the broader supply chain for these critical materials? Yeah, I think right now um, it's really all about interdisciplinary uh, teams, right? So you know, I can't. I don't think I can succinctly say all the different aspects of the supply chain workforce needs, but um, at least in, in manufacturing, you know, you know, we're moving to a lot of uh, Internet of Things type solutions. There's more automation. There's more machine learning and, and artificial intelligence driving the data needed to to make these processes smarter. Um, and then there's also the need, you know, uh, both technical workforce, you know, trade skills as well as, um, you know. Batteries is a good example that you're not looking necessarily for a, a single discipline training that you might have in the past. Like you need an electrochemical engineer rather than just a electrical engineer, or a chemical engineer. So I think there's there's really where, where um, disciplines intersect is where the interesting things are happening. So I think, you know, it's a lot of when I talk to industry um, about this, it's, it's a lot of the soft skills. I, and I hate to use that term, but quote unquote, soft skills, like, you know, can you work in a diverse uh, team, you know? Um, and I think uh, I spent a lot of my time, both as a researcher and now at, at the Department of Energy, is like, I call it translating English to English. You know, can you work with an economist and engineer and kind of bring them together? So I think those are, you know, my, my personal anecdotes of what I think is necessary. Super interesting. Yeah, I think that's, that's something that we hear regularly. Uh, the value of that interdisciplinary research, but also that interdisciplinary translation ability. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I want to go back to something you said earlier when you were kind of describing CMI's mandate and areas of focus. And you mentioned there are four types of investigation that you focus on. So research on diversifying supply, research on developing substitutes. And you mentioned as well that some of these things are pretty hard to substitute for. So I'd love to talk about that in just a little bit more detail. Um, but there's a third effort on driving reuse and recycling, and then the cross-cutting efforts that sort of bring everything together. So maybe I wanted to, yeah, just delve a little bit into each of those in turn. And maybe we can start by chatting about um, a success story that I know was announced in late May of this year, which focused on efforts to diversify supply for a range of rare earth metals using improved separation techniques. So uh, I will say the press release for this got pretty weedy into some of the um, <laughs> the actual sort of uh, mechanics of separation. And I know that this might be a, a, something new for our audience, but it'd be great to hear a little bit more about, and as, many, <laughs> as much as you can sort of explain for the layman, what sort of breakthrough you had there. Yeah, so that particular success story is about um, separation. So when we look at the supply chain for rare earth magnets, you know, there's the first step of mining uh, from, you know, uh, raw um, virgin materials or also extraction from other uh, conventional or secondary sources. Um, then you need to, to kind of concentrate 
those materials out um, from the ore or from you know whatever source that you're you're using. And because rare earth elements are found together in an ore, it's not just a neodymium ore, it's really um, most of the rare earths will be found altogether. Um, you need to separate out those from each other um, so that you can you know, refine those materials and actually incorporate them in the magnet itself. Um, so this success story really focused on that separation aspect. And what's uh, challenging about separating rare earth elements from each other is that because they're all next to each other in the periodic table, they're very chemically similar. Um, so it, it, it is quite difficult to do that efficiently. And so basically that, that we call this the midstream of the supply chain where we, we focus on that um, separation or refining of the materials. Um, and that's, and that I guess maybe harking back to the question you had on like, what what's difficult about critical material supply chains um that's often the, the challenge is that we don't have that midstream capability to refine the materials because you need a customer for for who's extracting materials and you also need a supplier for manufacturers right the wind turbine uh, manufacturers need the magnets so this particular um technology that was developed by CMI really increased the uh, efficiency of separating out um, rare earth elements from each other and then they can be used to you know be refined further and manufactured in magnets. Very interesting. Um, what about what about some examples on kind of the other areas of research either on developing substitutes um, or maybe on driving reuse and recycling? I, I really appreciated your comment about you know you don't want to be creating other problems in in efforts to solve one problem and i'm assuming that this idea of waste and um keeping an eye on what sort of waste is being generated even as these materials is being created is definitely on the minds of folks at doe so yeah i'd welcome any examples on on those uh streams of work too yeah i could probably talk about this all day but i'll try to be <laughs> succinct um so cmi has a lot of work in substitution they're mostly focused on uh, substitution for rare earth magnets um, and so one of the, um, or they're, they're looking at several compositions for what we call quote unquote gap magnets. And so what this is, is there's an opportunity to really displace some of the demand for rare earth magnets or, you know, reduce the overall demand by looking at gap magnets. And so what they really are is, is you look at, um, there, there are only actually four types of commercial magnets available. And there's a really big difference in the strength of those magnets. Um, so there's two that are kind of lower in strength. They don't use very many critical materials. And then there's these really high strength magnets that use rare earth elements. And so in between, there's a big difference in those strengths. And if your needs fall in that gap, like that kind of, we call it the gap area, um, you have to use this really high strength rare earth magnet, even though you might not need that much strength, right? So they really focus on, um, they have a couple different compositions. Um, that they are developing to actually um, meet that gap area. So again, just kind of displacing some of the demand for, for the rare earth magnet. So uh, one of the compositions in particular is cerium uh, cobalt based. Um, and what's interesting about using cerium is it's actually a rare earth element, but it, it's produced in surplus generally because it's there's not a lot of demand for it. So um, the, the idea is that like, if you could actually find a market for this, you could increase the overall economics of mining rare earth elements um, and also, um, you know, again, meet this gap area and displace the need for, for neodymium in some, some areas where you might not need it. And then there's more available for, for other applications that really can't be substituted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. 
Um, and then maybe quickly on recycling, um, they have another technology, uh, we call it membrane solvent extraction, um, but really it's been tailored um, to recover either rare earth elements or, or actually battery critical materials like lithium and cobalt, nickel and manganese from electronic waste or manufacturing waste. Um, and so we have a lot of, you know, I'm happy to follow up with some materials on success stories for this technology, but it's actually right now, it's pretty exciting. Um, uh, they've partnered with a, an industry partner and they're actually designing two battery recycling plants. Um, so it's, you know, one of the first technology we're kind of seeing like going out into the market and, and actually making a difference. That is fantastic. You know, I probably should have started with an, with an earlier or asked an earlier question about maybe lay the, the geographical landscape for some of these critical materials as well. Um, so obviously some are more rare than others. And yet, you know, what is the distribution of some of these critical things um, sort of when we're talking about geography? How many of these things um, are available in the United States, but might require some of these sort of enhanced separation techniques? How much are we relying on stockpiles that really live in other countries? Can you say anything about that? Yeah. Um, so, you know, for rare earth elements, actually, we're the second biggest miner of those elements in the, in the world. Um, but because we don't have that midstream capability to really separate and refine those rare earth elements, we have to export them. And then basically we, we re-import them in the form of value-add manufactured products. So your cell phone, for instance. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so it's it's like in a lot of cases, in, in rare earth elements, it's kind of interesting because they're not actually rare. They're they're pretty uh, commonly distributed in the Earth's crust, but to find them in like an economic mineable quantity is is less common, right? So um, it's kind of a misnomer to a large extent. Um, for other materials, you know, um, cobalt is a good example. We don't have a lot of cobalt. Um, no, actually, I should say known reserves um, of, of cobalt in the United States. But, you know, there is um, a huge opportunity to recycle cobalt from um, lithium ion batteries at end of life. Um, so that's a big effort um, that the Department of Energy funds to, we're both looking to, you know, reduce the amount of cobalt in batteries, but also recover cobalt um, at end of life. Um, and also extending, you know, we can do other things like extending the lifetime of the technologies, right? So they're um, making better use or even reusing them um, after the first, you know, maybe after the EV battery is done, um, you can use it in a stationary storage um, application. So there's a lot of different ways to kind of mitigate against uh, supply issues. Um, so we, we kind of focus on all of those different aspects at Department of Energy. Very interesting. Well, uh, nothing like ending on a hard question, <laughs> but I'm going to sort of close the substantive part of our conversation by asking. Uh, so among kind of these three big areas that we've talked about, supply diversification, developing substitutes, driving reuse and recycling. What are the, what are really the thorniest challenges that CMI is facing? And maybe I'm going to flip this and also ask it in a slightly more optimistic way, but if there were one or two breakthroughs that you feel would really sort of most move forward CMI's mission, what would they be? Yeah, I think the first is really um, some of the the work that they're doing to advance processing right in that midstream separation and refining aspect. So we talked a lot about separation. We didn't talk as much about the next step, which is taking that separated um, 
it's an oxide form and making it into a metal and then an alloy that actually goes into the magnet. So they have a lot of work on looking to reduce the, the temperature of that, the number of steps used to do that. So basically increasing the efficiency of these processing technologies. Um, and so there's two things that I think are really exciting about that. One is that it has the potential for us to develop these capabilities in the United States, um, but it also would be cutting edge, right? It would. It, I think a lot of times people think if it's more uh, environmentally friendly, it must be more costly, but that's not actually always the case. A lot of times the drivers to reduce costs also reduce environmental impacts. So I think that's a really exciting uh, aspect. Um, but in general, I think what's what's challenging and, and maybe exciting for the future um, for CMI is that transition of technology into um, into industry. And that's something that you know DOE is, has expanded in the last couple of years. You know, we've had over a decade investment in fundamental research um, and applied research and development. Um, but now in the last couple of years, we've really expanded that portfolio to include some small pilots and demonstration projects. Um, validating technologies, um, you know, at industrial relevant levels. And so most recently, um, you know, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act was passed. It's really exciting because it, it gave uh, Department of Energy um, the opportunity to really expand our efforts um, for, for pilot and validation and also even add some commercialization activities to the fold. Um, so we're really looking, you know, forward to engaging with our stakeholder base um, to design, you know, a broader program of critical materials spanning from research, applied research, basic research, all the way through commercialization, um, looking at you know all levels of the supply chains, uh, different aspects of science and technology innovation, um, you know, and again getting things out into the world um, so that we can start solving all these challenges that we see. Yeah, and also learning from those from those um, deployment opportunities too. I imagine that. Like all industries, there is some learning by doing that can um, come forward as you start to get these things out into the world a bit more. So yeah, very, very exciting. So this has been great. It's really nice to sort of what I would what I would consider sort of lift up the curtain a little bit on all of the research that in fact underpins uh, the ways that we create the technologies that we in fact use every day. So I really appreciate that that insight uh, and as well as learning specifically about about CMI and the work that you all are supporting. So I really appreciate it. And I do I do want to close with our regular feature, top of the stack. Uh, so Helena, let me ask you, do you have any recommendations for our listeners? Um, good content can be you know in book form, article form, related to this topic, not related to this topic. But anything you'd want to recommend to our listeners who are interested broadly in in resource issues? What's on the top of your stack? Yeah, I really love this question. Um, I actually just finished reading uh, the Golden Compass series, um, which I've been meaning to do for a long time. It was I, I really enjoyed it. And then next on the top of my uh, reading list is uh, David Sedaris's newest book. So I'm looking forward to reading that. For a little little humor in life. That's always one of the best medicines, I think. That sounds great. Fantastic. Well, thank you again. And yeah, I hope we can have an opportunity to highlight some of the, the work that you all are doing on an ongoing basis, too. I'm sure there'll be other success stories to celebrate moving forward. Yeah, thanks so much, Kristen, for inviting me. That's always great. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. 
This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org slash donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.